Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm stoked you're here. Hopefully, you're surviving the zombie apocalypse in style, and it just continues to get weirder and weirder. What is actually going on? No one really knows, but will we make it through this? Certainly. Today, I have an interview with my friend Carl Decker, and it is a much appreciated reprieve from our, from what has been a pretty deep dive into COVID and coronavirus. And although we touch on that for a moment, we mostly fill this episode with funny stories and Carl's own hilarious reflections, mainly of himself. I think he's, (laughs) Carl is a professional mountain bike racer and I'll let him explain where he falls in that field that's it's just absolutely hilarious but he has a very dry sense of humor and he's also he has this like as you listen you could almost think that he is self-deprecating and on the other side you could almost think that he's arrogant but the reality is that he's so perfectly accurate that he's neither of those things and just the way that he describes himself in the mountain biking industry and professional mountain bike racing is just fucking hilarious today. Um, we get into a lot of things in this podcast. We get into bikes in China. We get into him racing his normal bike against e-bikes at the biggest, uh, at like the mountain bike trade show. Um, we get into rally racing. He's a rally race car driver. We get into the X Games where he raced. Yeah, it's uh, we do a lot in this episode, and so I think you'll really appreciate it. He is someone that I'm friendly with, and so as you'll notice, we just kind of start. I start. I we connect on the call, and we we kind of just start bullshitting, really, and then we the bullshitting works so well, and so I don't really delineate where our call starts to where this conversation starts. So I'm just going to kind of drop you into this and you guys are going to enjoy this one, I'm sure. So if you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. That really helps and consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I appreciate all of you have donated. And without further ado, here's a little music and my conversation with my friend Carl Decker. Enjoy. I'm pretty good. A little bit tired today. Kind of cut coffee out of my diet five days ago, and I just regret it every day. 
hoping that there's, yeah. <laughs> hoping there's some kind of horizon line where I just like feel energized in the mornings without drinking coffee, but not feeling that yet. Well, it took you a big part of your life to get to where you needed coffee to feel normal. It'll take you a few weeks maybe to feel normal without it. Yeah, no shit. Sucks. Do you drink coffee? Well, I don't drink day? coffee except race days, man. Wait, you don't drink coffee? Except race days. Oh, really? Yeah. And I fucking feel amazeballs. It's awesome. On race days, you do? Or just in general? <laughs> in general, I don't feel that great. But when I drink coffee, since I only do it on race days, like, it, I mean, business, and it, I feel awesome. Wow. Yeah, I bet. I, That's uh, cool. Yeah, that might be a good idea. So why are you doing it? Just like find the thing, see if you can do it, whatever. I don't know. Honestly, I was just like kind of finding myself a little bit manic or like um, just a little bit anxious or on edge. Like I think my nervous system is just kind of on edge in general just for my last four months of life and stacked on top of all of the new uncertainty that has come in. It's like kind of like... Yeah, just like yesterday I was like walking out in the near the river trail and like to get there I walked through the neighborhood and this dog barked behind me and I fucking nearly jumped out of my skin and it was like it's <laughs> just like this is stupid. I don't know. Yeah, I think we're all yeah. a little bit on edge right now and I have sympathy for people who are just like kind of on edge. Um, it seems like that's a reasonable thing right now with just everything going on, even. Oh yeah. Cause right now, like everybody, sh- if you're not anxious, you're not paying attention. Seriously or something like, I don't know. Maybe you're just a also, Zen yeah, master. It gives you uh, some insight into like the way, you know, cause I'm not an anxious person per se and neither am I a, uh, a germaphobe but right now i'm a fucking anxious ass germaphobe (laughs) yeah i know the germ part of everything is so weird too because you know i've lived for so long on like what i call camp sanitation that i just kind of like rinse things off like i i i I like to think that i know when it's important for something to be really clean and like most of the time that's you know you don't need that and so now it's like I don't know. It's so strange to have to even consider it. Even considering it yeah. is just such a big, drastic change, and it's such a fucking rabbit hole. Honestly, like when you think about going to the grocery store, and then like everything you touch, or like even just leaving the house, you're like you come back and you're like, okay, now is my phone contaminated? Are my clo- are my clothes contaminated? Are all my groceries contaminated? Okay. Like, do I have to wash the outside of these fucking bananas now? Like, what is, like, what is the best practice here? Right. It's compartmentalizing everything, right? Like, deciding if your car is a a clean zone or a dirty zone, right? Like, am I going to clean my steering wheel and my doorknobs and stuff so I can get in and out of my car without it being, you know, danger? (laughs) Or is that just, like, anytime I go to the car that I have to, like, clean up what I get back or something, you know, it's weird. Yeah. And I think that what we're touching on is actually like at the root of why this whole thing is so disquieting for people's psyches. It's like unnerving. Like it's such an invisible 
agent that we have such limited experience dealing with on any level. Like it's just like, there's so few of us who are actually germaphobes who have experience with thinking about this kind of shit. Right. And when those people are like, for once in their life, have like a leg up, like, oh yeah, I've been wearing gloves (laughs) outside the house my whole life. I've been making fun of those people my whole life. And now I was like, well, I'm done making fun of those people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's part of it. You know, there's like this social, you know, and I've seen articles that compare the, the social stuff of the United States to like East Asian countries who are like mask wearing cultures and just like the social implications of like wearing a mask and gloves to the grocery store and like feeling like a kook. Right. Which is like, yeah, that's a funny, um, reprieve for a germaphobe who's like welcome to the club bitches like Uh (laughs) i'm I'm finally fashionable i'm finally fashionable (laughs) but it's also crazy how quickly that has changed because honestly like i went to the grocery store um and just in the matter of a couple of days right i had to do a couple of shops this week at two different places and like first time we're all just like walking around kind of like business as usual the second time, literally like if like I think I was the only one without a mask. Like if you didn't have a mask, you had like a buff, you know, you just put whatever you can, like a scarf, you know. You must be shot from on the west side. <laughs> no, dude. No, I was at food for less, man. I was at food oh, for shit. less. Yeah. But it's like there yeah. was people with like full on like like whatever it is like painters wear that have like the big canisters on each side, the big yeah. like respirators. No way. Yeah. Whatever you can get your hands on these days right now, it seems. Yeah. And it's funny because when initially weeks ago, they're like, oh, you don't, you know, masks aren't necessary and they don't help. And I'm like, dude, just because the thing will fit through the mask doesn't mean that the mask isn't going to catch 95% of the things, Yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, uh, I was like, that seems like bullshit back then and then i don't know if that was just a ploy to try to keep people from making a run on the whole mask thing and i think it was i I think think it was too which is a scary like that's a scary segue into the next most disgusting and terrifying aspect of what we're seeing right now is like the control of information and social engineering of how you can literally through controlling eight or 12 different media outlets you can shape public not opinion, but behavior. Right. Yeah. And fact, as far as people are concerned. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And it's, it's so scary. Up. It's super scary. I was just reading this morning about the whole U.S. Postal Service going under possibly by June. And the everybody or this personal person or this person thinking that uh, Trump will let it die just so that there can't be vote by mail. So that he'll basically just declare himself president. Uh, Yeah, well, the conspiracy theories are coming out of every corner on this one. And it's something that I'm actually, I've been thinking a lot about. And I have been, I'm like pretty sympathetic to that kind of stuff. You know, I was in seventh grade when September 11th happened, which primed me for the, you know, the five years after that, when I was rebelling against everything and to 
dig deep into the bullshit narrative that was the official 9-11 commission report that they spent like four dollars producing (laughs) and you know like I don't claim to know exactly what happened that day, but I just know that what is in the official report is not the whole truth. And, um, and so nowadays I'm like, you know, the connection between Bill Gates, um, you know, doing Ted talks in the last couple of years on germ theory and his work in polio and just like the whole thing. And, 5g and all this like conspiracy theories coming out i'm like sensitive to the feeling that's behind it and honestly in the last couple of days i've actually been kind of like meditating on what i'm feeling when my head goes there because my head goes to this to this um to this conspiracy theory end, right? Because this podcast basically for the last two weeks has really represented a really empowered state that I felt like that there's a opportune time right now for me to put my perspective out there and that one, I won't be seem, I won't seem like a kook, like I'm crazy anymore when I say that the systems that we live in are fragile and bullshit. And also that it might have some kind of impact and that we're our chance to like kind of take our own individual power back is like now but i've also like that's one side of the pendulum the other side of the pendulum is like intellectually wondering about conspiracy theories and the opposite of empowerment is disempowerment and i feel like when i told someone how i was thinking about these conspiracy theories and how it like just like my whole like kind of cloud of thoughts around it. He reflected to me, yeah, that sound, it sounds like you feel disempowered. And that was like liberating for me because I hadn't yet put the emotion to that state. And in that moment, I felt like a way deeper sympathy, both for myself in the past and for all of the people on the internet that I see who are genuinely feeling this disempowerment that the government is this oppressive thing that's coming for them that the media is like this thing that is trying to like engineer their information and engineer their mental states and i feel so sympathetic for them because for the like first of all because that's fucking real like that's totally real like (laughs) the world elites and government and media is like one big shitty thing right and um Although I think there is a really small number of malevolent men in that group, there's a huge number of weak men in that group. And so it's like, I don't know, the whole conspiracy theory has really, um, has been a, has been a thing I've been wrestling with over the last couple of weeks as we've dealt with all of this. And especially now as, you know, stories are coming out of Southern California of people being arrested for paddleboarding, arrested for being a national, you know, public land, that kind of stuff. That's fucking terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not terrified by that too much. I mean, desperate times and desperate measures. I think are, that seems reasonable. Like the mob mentality of, if one guy can do something, then everybody feels the right to do it is a problem. So yeah. Without reason. Yeah. I mean, I can, 
sympathize with that side of the argument. And I can also sympathize with the argument of the person who's just like, you know, I live here and I have to go, like, I need to go outside. Like, I think that like being outside in nature is kind of one of our basic needs, especially to keep our immunity and our like minds right. Oh, for sure it is. And so like putting that kind of lockdown, like, is that actually for the benefit or is that like the social engineering of just martial law and absolute tyranny, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. So, no, man, it's a unique situation for sure. It is. It always is when, when those things happen. Right. So yeah, we're certainly in uncharted waters together. Yeah. So for this whole podcast thing, you tape it now or we say we're going to start. <laughs> I don't know. We're, on, we're, we're on. kind of on a roll, aren't we, Carl? I pushed record, uh, a, long, I pushed record like, a long time ago. Start out with like, uh, I don't know, do you, should I introduce myself or something? Sure. Let's hear it. What? Who are you? Well, I mean, I don't know who your market is or who's, but <laughs> I imagine most of them don't know who the hell I am. <laughs> All right. Well, if, if they are most people, then they don't know who I am. I am Carl Decker. I am uh, a longtime professional mountain bike racer with uh, the giant factory off-road team for eight year, 18 years and, I don't know, arguably the world's oldest living pro bike mountain biker guy, I guess. <laughs> I there's, there's other guys that are older, but I'm faster than them, so I don't know. I'm somewhere... <laughs> I'm the fastest guy that's this old that's actually still racing and hasn't had a lapse. <laughs> maybe, maybe globally. Uh, I'm 44 years old. I live in Bend, Oregon. Uh, yeah, that's it. I also am into cars and skiing and whatever. I like turning, and that's pretty much the basis for everything that gives me that I pursue, kind of. Oh my God, Carl. Wow. You have the highest concentration of age and speed. Of any mountain bike. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. Yeah, there's lots of people that are slightly younger that are much faster, or that are a lot older that are a little bit slower. (laughs) But there's nobody that's older that hasn't quit at some point. (laughs) I'm just I'm living the dream deeper into my 40s than anybody has, I think. (laughs) <laughs> that is Very hilarious memory and at least this is all my own little microcosmos that is just the best intro i have ever had on this podcast for sure that is amazing you're also a, a race car driver tell us about your race car driving uh i um i race cars a bit i race rally cars stage rally racing which is much like enduro motorcycle or mountain bike racing in terms of how that works, kind of special stages and, you know, time trials and uh, adding all your times up after a couple of days of racing against the clock uh, with a co-driver telling you what's around the corner. Um, so I've done that a fair bit. And I don't know, basically I'm, I've been into like autocross and other, you know, poor man automotive pursuits. In terms of uh, uh, you know anything that burns gas and and has an entry fee, that gets really expensive really quick. So yeah. uh, being a you know a journeyman bike racer or a pizza delivery guy that's moonlighting as a bike racer fifteen years ago wasn't really 
you know, that lucrative still isn't, but, uh, you know, I've always kind of done the most with the least among the guys I'm racing with. So that's kind of my goal. So, uh, I went to the X games, X game 16 in 2010 raced rally cars in the LA Coliseum. Really? Probably the height of my, um, well, most certainly the height of my um, motorsports stuff. I never knew that. That's rad. Yeah, uh, Adam Craig, my bike racing teammate, and I uh, made a big push to kind of see where we could get with our meager money and and pretty blossoming skill set. We didn't have a lot of seat time, as I call it, in the sport, but uh, we did well. We did like we tried to do most of the national series, and we were like top five or six overall in the country at the national races. So that was good enough to get us the X games. And uh, it was super crazy, amazing. It was the most surreal and uh, amazing experience of my life. I would say that that particular day. Racing in the Coliseum. What was Adam yeah. there for that? What's that? Was Adam in there for that? He wasn't there. There's no, so it's, I mean, that's the thing. Like that race isn't even rally racing. It's mm -hmm. like stadium truck racing and rally cars. It's, it's really kind of dumb. Um, but to be included in that was pretty neat. Um, I think there was 12 or 16 cars total. And I was actually the alternate. Um, so I was like the 13th guy. I think, yeah, there's 12 cars. I was the 13th guy. Um, Cause that it's not just like the rally national championships that fed into that race. It was like a bunch of, a bunch of people from like indie cars and whatever. Um, just the high end people from other sports to make it, uh, you know, a big fantastic show or whatever. People with a lot of money basically. <laughs> um, so yeah, we went down there and I was like, I remember there, the LA Coliseum, like that's where they had the Olympics in 84. It's a pretty amazing place. And I was, I'd never been there and it was cool. Like those big arched turnstiles where you come through, there's staircases into the place on that one end. And we, they covered that in dirt. So you went up the stairs and jumped out through the turnstiles, did a couple turns and then came back down, jumped down the stairs. I remember just like, grabbing second and pinning it off this jump and jumping down these stairs and it was pretty rough and just thinking man that's that's gnarly but whatever that's what you gotta do and then i got done practicing and this this dude some i forget some pro driver guy is like hey you know that you're you're going further off that jump than anybody here you know that right <laughs> like, uh, no and then i realized like everybody that was trying to not break their car in half was like easing up and then landing and getting a bunch more speed for the next straight because they're on the gas sooner um anyway it was it was fun learned a lot uh travis pastrana's car caught fire and then he, he, he and i went back and forth on who was going to get in the race and uh i shook his hand like five times because it was like oh good luck out there and then his car would start and i'd say good luck to him and then they would catch fire and then he'd say good luck to me and it was all crazy with like 40 seconds to go i ended up getting in the race because everybody wanted pastrana in there but they got me instead so <laughs> nice so you replaced pastrana at the x games yep nice that's a that's a the title of the show replacing pastrana at the x games <laughs> carl decker and there was a big jump in there like a road gap thing uh -huh. there was like a 70 foot jump 
and I didn't practice it because I didn't have anything to break. I, I didn't have any parts to fix my car if I broke anything. And then, but I did break like a rear axle. So by the time we, the time I raced, I just took my rear axles out. And because, and then and like, just had a front wheel drive car. <laughs> and I didn't tell anybody because I was like, well, if my car is broken. I don't want them to like say that you can't do it. And I was like, I still want to do this thing. I think it'll be all right. So I remember getting, like I was the only car out there that wasn't four wheel drive and I went off that jump and I was like, what's going to happen when you go off of a 70 foot jump in third with just front wheel drive, you know, ended up being fine, but, but wow. Yeah, neat day. 70 foot jump in a car. That sounds terrifying. Cars aren't really made to jump. I've done a lot of bigger, like longer jumps than that, like natural jumps in, uh, you know, in the woods, like it's, it's speed at a hundred miles an hour, like. You're jumping 70 feet all the time yeah you're hitting crests and stuff not all the time that's overstating it but um but gap jumps it's it's just like on a mountain bike like a gap jump at 70 feet is a totally different animal in in your head than a just a set regular 70 foot crest you know yeah totally jump but anyway so yeah i've raced cars a bit i you know i ride motorcycles a little bit not well but well enough to have fun and uh yeah just i'm a tinker motorhead kind of guy that likes likes the mechanic mechanical aspect and setup aspect of of these sports so it's fun yeah well our mutual connection is adam craig who's one of my best friends and he adam has amazing mechanical advice he it, he's my go-to mentor for anything about my bike or my truck or my any of that. And he has a high regard for Carl's tire advice. <laughs> he, <always> says, <laughs> he says, Carl has excellent tire advice. And, and as we, uh, you and I went on our first mountain bike ride together earlier this year, I just touching your tires. I was like, wow, that is a PSI that I think I could, I could get behind. Uh, Adam always um, makes me run a high tire pressure so I don't break my bike. But then I started letting some of the air out to quite the uh, nice effect. That's and I have regarded that as the Carl pressure, the Decker pressure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's 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 a different thing to everybody, you know. How good your eyes work and how light you can be on your bike and how aggressively you're riding. I guess I have good eyes and I ride like a pussy. So, so I can run pretty damn low pressure. I, well, I rarely am landing flat off of stuff because I can make more speed in corners by having a low pressure and mitigate the losses I have by like having to break up for stuff that I land flat off of. That's my general idea most of the time. Yeah, well, when I went to Horse Ridge with Adam and told him that I was riding a Decker tire pressure, he said, shut up, Carl's way better than you. Pump up your tires. <laughs> well, I'm just better. At, I'm, I'm definitely careful. <laughs> More yeah. careful than you, I would admit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm no wizard, but I am pretty good at not breaking wheels. Well, you're quite experienced, so you can't argue with experience. Seat time, as they say in the industry. Yeah. Tell me your uh, tell me your thoughts on this uh, upcoming season of bike racing. What do you what do you predict? Uh, 
I think this season largely won't happen at all. That's my guess. Uh, 2020 is going to be the season that never happens. There's a chance that there's some racing late in the season, like cyclocross could happen. But I, re- I mean, even then, like, that's just going to be early flu season. And like, if this, unless this stuff, unless there's some crazy miracle by which we have a vaccine in half the time that they think, then uh, it doesn't seem that it's really tenable to have a couple thousand people to come together and hang out next to each other and breathe on each other. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, I think Strava, like the whole online Swift thing, trainer racing is going to explode. But I mean, the bottom line is that's like, that's a good stop gap for people that want to ride outside, but it, by no means is that interesting or fun in and of itself. Um, I've tried it just a little bit and I was like, okay, this is better than riding the trainer and looking at the wall, but like it's a matter of degree, really. Like it's, it's awful. Um, so yeah, there's just got like, people got to figure out what they're going to do with themselves. Like we're all training at this point to be healthy individuals and to have like some, some packs, some strength in our pack, whether, you know, whoever's living with you or, or near you, your friends, whoever you're in contact with, like you're trying to stay healthy for them and yourself and going out and riding for four hours in the rain ain't making you healthy. It's making you, it'll make you hella strong, but first it's going to make you weak and that's not what anybody needs right now. So, um, yeah, it's the whole shift in mindset and it's, it's easier for me because I have other things I like to do with, you know, I can go out in the garage and nerd out with car projects and motorcycle rebuilding and stuff, but, for people that are kind of, you know, jumped into cycling with both feet, and that's their only thing that, that they get that gives them pleasure on the weekends. It's going to be hard to to reset, you know. Mm. So it's going to be real hard. Yeah, for sure. That's um, yeah, the whole being outside thing is pretty integral for the mountain bike scene. It seems. Yeah, for mountain bike, road bike, any bike. I mean, that's what bikes, even if you're riding in, you know, just even if you're a flatlander, like freestyle guy, like being outside is a hell of a lot better than being in a warehouse doing that stuff. Yeah. It's going to be hard, but at the same time, it's hard to, you know, you know, historically, there's been a lot bigger challenges to people, you know, like what's, what's harder, giving up your bike and not going running on the river trail or you know fighting trench warfare in vietnam or something you know that's what people were doing not long ago people like us and it feels silly to like bemoan the state of of what we have to do when we have like plenty of food and (laughs) the heat's still working and all we gotta do is like not go ride our mountain bikes or go running or go skiing it seems silly. I, like I'm struggling with it, but I'm trying not to talk about it because I'm embarrassed that I'm struggling with it because it seems really pathetic, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, talk to me about your own sense making as you're dealing with that. Like, is there a part of you that thinks you can go out and ride your mountain bike like reasonably and not be in a burden on society? Absolutely. Like we have a pretty unique set up here in in bend you know bend's a city of a hundred thousand people it's more than that in reality but 
we're surrounded by unlimited uh, federal land, like every direction for 50 miles, 200 miles in some directions, there's nothing. So, you know, the trails in town are busy and the trails outside of town, I've never seen them busier, it's insane. But like, if you go, if you drive 10 minutes further or you ride your bike another 10 miles, there's still nobody out there. So we have a pretty unique situation. And if it's raining outside, you know, bend, bend people don't ride in the rain. We have, we have too much sun to do that. So like, it's, it's not untenable to go get some exercise. Um, but like I have some friends in, uh, in Italy that are big mountain biker people. And like, they are basically, you know, the, they're in Torino, Turin. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're basically going to get arrested if they go further than a kilometer from their house without evidence that they have a doctor's appointment or there's not, if they can't prove that there's not groceries in their, in their district or whatever, you know? Uh So that's a totally different place. Um, and you know, they were struggling with it. Like, Oh, we could go out and, you know, go do this thing. But at the same time, it like you become part of the problem kind of when you're out there and like people that aren't as considered as you are going to go do the same thing. I don't know. It's just a kind of a, it's weird, man. Like I do feel a little weird being out there. Not when I'm not being seen, but like you're going to be seen. You're like getting in a car, or you're riding through neighborhoods or whatever. At, at this point, I feel okay doing it. I feel it's the best thing for me and it's the best thing for a bunch of people around Ben, but that's a very, very different thing in a different community. You know, if you're in New York City, like you can't just have everybody go to, New, to Central Park, you know, like yeah. that's the only place that's close and you're going to have to get on an elevator twice and you're going to have to get on a subway maybe twice and you're going to have to like be in other people's space and it's just not, it's not good. And part of me is like, well, that sucks that they live in the city. And part of me is like, well, it's kind of unfair that we don't have the same restrictions as them, you know? But I'm going to keep riding and, you know, like I'm, I'm dead serious about all this because my parents are both uh, medically, they've had some issues and they're both kind of low hanging fruit for this virus. So, and they live across the street and I'm trying to isolate them as best I can. So anything that comes to me is going to get to them pretty much. Yeah. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of serious as a heart attack about trying to keep that from happening as long as possible. Yeah. I think that's wise. I think that's wise, but it is hard to make those decisions. Like at what point do we stop riding our bikes and going outside here and bend? And I have been, I'm just so grateful that I don't live in the city and, you know, even in Southern California and, you know, like we were talking how people are being arrested for just being outside. It's like, uh, that kind of thing coming to our doorstep is something that terrifies me. And, you know, I can't imagine like in hood river, they just like closed down the national forests and yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you get to a point where, you know, Bend is surrounded 360 degrees by land and you get to Hood River and you got, you know, 180 degrees that's freeway and river. And then you got a bunch of private land. So you only got like, you know, close to the town, there's a couple pockets where you can go do cool stuff outside. 
and I bet you that it was just crazy, like, and you just can't get away from people. So it seems, I don't know, it seems not without warrant that they're doing that. It does suck for those people, and I guess you could get in your car and drive out in the middle, and, you know, drive up towards Mount Hood or get really far out there and not be bothered, but yeah. that's just based on our own lax federal policies on this stuff, you know? Mm. So, yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, Oregon's doing a really good job, it sounds like, in slowing this curve or flattening the curve. So maybe we, uh, it doesn't get super draconian here. Yeah. But we got a lot of land and not that many people. And that's, uh, and a lot of people that are kind of doing the right thing pretty early. I think you're right. I think you're right. That's, um, you know, before anything came top down here, most people that I knew were distancing themselves and doing their research and figuring out how they could best, you know, prepare and adjust. That was before any kind of top down input yeah. came. But we're in a, a, a bubble of, of kind of well-considered people that have the time and the luxury to like, look at look into this stuff and the and the tools to to rationally do so you know you take people that are working working their ass off at two jobs and they're hand to mouth and they got a family and they got all these responsibilities and they're upside down and behind the eight ball and everything like that's just a luxury they don't have so you can't really expect them to make the same what i think are good decisions so it's it sucks. Like you see those people and you like, you want to hate on them for not doing the right thing, but at the same time, like they're doing what as best they can, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I know. Well, it's, uh, it'd be better if there was, you know, some top down directives, but it's kind of every state for themselves. And that just kind of at the base turns into an every man for himself thing. Right. Yeah. Balkanization or authoritarianism, right? Those are the two directions. What's the other one? The first one? Balkanization. Like, uh, Balkanization. What's that? like the Balkan islands. Um, it's basically like, uh, a bigger collective breaking down into sub tribes that then take care of their own in group needs. So each of the islands is its own tribe type of thing? Yeah. Okay. So they're totally, it's like nationalism on a micro scale. Yeah. Uh, it's like the, uh, it's like the opposite direction. So like, if you imagine like the 50 states, then having like draconian measures imposed by the federal government, that would be like authoritarianism. And then balkanization right. would be like Deschutes County breaking off and being like, Oregon, you can't tell us what to do, that kind of thing. And furthermore, it would be like, you know, municipalities or even communities or families or people even arming themselves and bigger locks and fucking two directions that we really don't want to go. But it, it does bring up the interesting inquiry of like, okay, this is my sense making and this is how I'm going to operate my life. And other people still have the right to do that. Um, you know, the right. hand to mouth, go to work, feed your kids, that kind of stuff. Like we have to still provide room in our decision making and in our hearts that other people are still going to make decisions and that we can't necessarily force them to do what we want them to do, which is my segue into whether or not you're going to ride a mountain bike that has a battery and a motor 
or not. <laughs> Talk to me about e-bikes and what, um, especially e-bikes in America. And yeah. maybe you, maybe you have some talking. Everybody talking about this virus and like who should be doing what, but like we should totally just start talking about e-bikes again because that's way, way more fun and lighthearted uh, controversy. Exactly. And, and it still has controversy and it's still rooted in, you know, Italy is still so far ahead of us in this controversy as well. So that's an interesting uh, parallel. And maybe you've experienced the e-bike culture in the Alps or in Europe and can compare that to what we're seeing here in America. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I did experience that a little bit. I was in Europe. Well, I've been in Europe, you know, here and there for a long time. But um, I was in Italy a couple summers ago um, and uh, in Finale and just did some riding, ran some bikes and did some shuttles and did some other stuff. And like there were, you know, dudes by themselves like riding, but just to give people a, a, a basis for comparison. The riding there is very different than it is in Bend. Like there, none of the trails go uphill. You take paved roads for thousands of feet up and then you ride down awesome rowdy trails back down to town and eat ice cream or smoke cigarettes or do whatever you do <laughs> as, a, as an Italian or a, <laughs> somebody from out of there. But um, it was like no big deal and like seemed super sustainable. The bikes were doing basically the same thing that the bikes the, the non-powered bikes would do, you know, there's, there's no noise difference. There's no impact difference. And really there was no difference in the way that the people were dressed or the way that they carried themselves. It was like totally uh, normal and totally cool and awesome. And uh, I didn't see a ton of them, but like the people that were doing it were serious cyclists and that's, they just chose to do that instead of waiting, paying for a shovel or waiting for shovels and dealing with the, birding of cats that that involves so it was pretty sweet because riding up those paved roads on a trail bike that was you would need to ride down those roads would take hours and uh these dudes could just go out there and like you know ride uphill kind of at a leisurely pace um but hauling ass and then ride down and be home you know in a couple hours time and it was sweet um and then you have places that are the opposite of that which is i think most of america where the trails are two way and there's the people on e-bikes <laughs> by and large. Well, there's a bunch of people on e-bikes now. So that I'm, I'm speaking out of, of, it's not legitimate anymore to say that they're all total hacks that are, don't respect the rules of the trail or whatever, <laughs> because there's a bunch of people that are older guys that just want to, you know, ride big loops or do what they used to be able to do, which is cool. The stereotype is that they're just dudes that don't, <laughs> I won't say they don't belong out there because they do if they want to ride a bicycle, but they're just like riding, you know, dudes in sweatpants with no helmets and blasting tunes and doing whatever the hell they want, which is kind of fine in the larger picture. Like it doesn't really matter at all, but in the little, microcosm of trail community and how everybody else uh you know does things out there it's it's upsetting to some people <laughs> so it's pretty funny to see the differences from here to there well i mean even just what you said about 
in Europe, there being uphill paved roads that everyone's riding up. And then here we have uphill two-way trails. Like what's the impact of having an e-bike on an uphill two-way trail? Closing speed. That's the bottom line. Mm. Uh, you get basically a guy like me. I can ride almost as fast up the trails here as I can down if I'm sprinting up the trail because our trails are the bend trails for those that, that don't know are like pretty mellow like you can ride a road bicycle on them after a good rain and go pretty fast on most of them so downhill is relative like you know you can ride 10 miles downhill and you'll only drop like 500 feet or something mm -hmm. you know so normal people when they're riding even on slightly uphill stuff are going pretty damn slow and people on e-bikes are going pretty you know double those speeds so you mm -hmm. end up with people coming uphill at a speed that is unexpected, I guess. And if those people aren't hyper aware of the speed at which people are coming from above, which, you know, somebody that's new to cycling and not really totally aware of how hills work, which <laughs> e-bikes kind of make you unaware of what's a hill and what isn't, mm -hmm. it kind of becomes a problem with just, you know, getting whatever, getting out, getting, like this closing speed where people are kind of running into each other a little faster. Mm -hmm. And that's one of many angles to this thing. But mm. I'm, I don't really have issue with e-bikes out on the trails here. I mean, at first I, I, everybody that's really into cycling hated e-bikes when they came out and most of us still do. And I just still, something doesn't sit right with me kind of, but like, I can't, rationalize that it's just a mm -hmm. gut reaction that's totally unfair and un unfounded most of the time um, my old man has lives across the street and has a couple e-bikes and i you know like on a rare occasion we'll go out and ride together and it's really cool you know he's 71 years old and, and uh he can go ride with me and i can get a good workout we have a really fun experience together and it's, that's something that otherwise would be impossible so that's pretty neat well, that is a really silver lining of the whole thing is that it closes the gap between someone like you and someone like me on a mountain bike. Yeah. And when you and I rode, it was very similar. It's, it's awesome. You know, everybody gets what they want out of it. And I, you, you say the word silver lining, but I think that the whole cloud is good and the silver is the bad part, you know, like, <laughs> like it's, there's a very, there's not much to dislike about e-bikes. It's just, uh, there's a couple awkward, you know, we're early in it and there's just some awkward things. And I think even most of that has gone away already or a good deal of it. Uh -huh. But, you know, more people out doing something that doesn't burn gas and it's healthy and it supports an industry that supports me. And I think is a by and large a progressive and good industry. Um, you know, battery technologies, you know, precious earth metals and all that stuff is probably not a great industry, but I don't know. There's a, yeah, there's a lot to like there. It's just there hard is. for the dynamical bike racers to, to like have these Johnny come lately dudes show up at a trailhead and like be kind of weird. <laughs> like, you know, it's, well, it's, a, it's a funny deal. Yeah. And I'm also like, I feel or I guess I'm curious as to if there's a big element of the diehard mountain bikers hating e-bikes because they get actually passed by the Johnny come lately on the uphill. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. 
if it is weird, right? Like if I'm riding, riding, I don't get passed often, right? Because even if I'm riding slow, I'm a professional bike racer. Like to be passing me, you have to be like going really hard, even if you're like a pretty good bike racer. So it happens pretty rarely. So it is a weird position to be a guy like me. And, and, and the difference between me and somebody that's a middling bike racer is very small. So a, a, just a, any bike racer that's expert level or medium, medium and above is going pretty good and doesn't get passed on the trails. And then when some dude in sweatpants with a backpack full of Gatorade and <laughs> no helmet goes by you and like gives you this smug look, and like forces you off the trail or something it's like oh fuck that this is not, this ain't cool you know <laughs> so it's not it's uh that's a it's a total it's a slight that yeah is is very small and it's inconsequential in the grand scheme of things but it's there you know like we've been all riding bikes and trying to make these incremental gains and then you have these interlopers with this machine that's doing it for them and, and they like they didn't earn it which i don't really have a problem with that you can have a runner or somebody that doesn't earn it that or that earns it from somewhere else but or maybe you make some money and you earn it and you buy an e-bike but there's definitely some weird social uh chafing going on when when things like that happen well in your opinion what do you think is more abrasive for the mountain bike community to accept the e-bikes is it this closing speed or is it the social chafing it's the social change man that's all yeah. it is man it's yeah. it's all people like this closing speed is legitimate but like the same could be said of me sprinting uphill uh-huh. the difference is that when when you sprint you're always paying attention you know you're hyper aware of everything generally when you sprint like if you can go right up a hill fast you know what you're doing and you're generally aware of what's going to be happening. Uh-huh. You know, I, early on, um, as an aside, kind of down that road, um, I, I went to San Francisco with somebody from Giant. We had some new road e-bikes when they first came out. This is three, four years ago now. And uh, we were taking them to like Wired Magazine and like showing them some editors and stuff. And we would just, we stayed in downtown, downtown San Fran. And we just went and rode these things around and I'd never been on an e-bike before. And, uh, there was like, there was a couple ways that this like surprise of speed happened. That was surprising to me. I've ridden my bike. You know, I've ridden my bike and I've ridden it fast for my whole life, but like to be on the boardwalk or like on the sidewalk near the Presidio, like where there's pedestrians and just be able to like noodle along and barely pedal yet be going 26 miles an hour without really noticing it put me in places where i was like oh wow i'm like going to run over these people and like i'm really aware guy i never crash into anything really like i'm i'm hyper vigilant when i ride bikes i'm too (laughs) old to be crashing into things um so it was like oh wow that's that's weird like i need to be careful and i'm usually really careful and this is like challenging my ability to be careful so take somebody that's not accustomed to that vigilance and it's a much scarier thing for them and everybody else. But the flip side of that was I was out there riding. So like you ride and, and, and cars don't expect you're going uphill, say you're going up a slight incline 
and a car's going to pull out and it sees you and you're just wearing like jeans and no helmet and you're on some bikes looks like just city bike like they glance at you and make they prejudge how fast you're going to be going just based on what you look like and that yeah. it's uphill and they pull out in front of you all the time if you're on an e-bike because you're going triple the speed that they're anticipating which makes it dangerous for you yeah. on the flip side of that i think it might make cyclists on the road safer yeah. because it's gonna like people are going into it that bikes could be going a lot faster everybody's possibly going fast and you actually need to like pay attention and look at cyclists and be like okay that guy's actually going slow he doesn't just look slow just as oh. just some i don't know that's where my brain went with all that no i think that's a likely outcome of not knowing how not knowing what's in the bottom bracket of any given bike on the road. Right. So it makes somebody that rides a lot that, you know, you're on a road bike and you're cruising at 25 miles an hour, a lot, 20 miles an hour in town, maybe uh, it might make you a little bit safer that these, these people on e-bikes are just bouncing around town at 20, 25 miles an hour and surprise have been surprising people for a few years. Yeah. Now it's not that surprising that a car, a bike is going 25 miles an hour. Yeah. And, you know, here in Bend, especially on like the non-sport side of e-bikes, like the amount of, like, I don't know what they're called and I don't really even know how they work, but there's like the basket in front of the rider with like, yeah, like cargo bikes. Yeah. Like cargo bikes. That's one style of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's like cargo bikes with like two kids and a dog in them. And, and they're mom. going like 35 miles an hour. Seriously. It's crazy. And they're not pedaling. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Or there's some of them that like have these stretched frames. So mom will sit in the front and there'll be like legitimately two and a half children on the back of this thing, straddling the rear tire. Yeah. And you that's know, like 10 years ago, we used to see pictures of people doing that in China and we we're like, Oh, they're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's like what, you know, upwardly mobile West side bend people. do. <laughs> yeah. That's the new Honda civic. Yeah. It's easy it's to park, you know? It's easy um, to park. It's only fifteen hundred bucks for the bike. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think it's, I don't know, like the way Amsterdam is just so bike centric. I think Bend is kind of the, uh, some kind of barometer as to what is possible if people had less cars and more electric bikes. And I honestly, I had this Mazda MX six that I sold a couple of years for a thousand bucks, and I just just mere months after that cringe that I didn't try to trade it for a, just an e-bike that I could just commute on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, well, I mean, around Bend, you like, you're a fit enough dude, you're no bike racer, but like where in Bend are you going to ride that you really need an e-bike? Like you can do the same trip on a normal bike. Yeah, it's true. It's not hilly. It's not it's hilly. And, and, uh, yeah, but then you get into those cargo bikes, you know, like the grocery run that you got to take. For sure. That I got to drive my V8 truck to. That's true. That's true. So. For sure. You know, uh, you mentioned Amsterdam, and I have, I've never actually been there other than the airport, great airport. Um, I've traveled to China a bit the last couple of years, and, uh, or the last few years for some cyclocross races and whatnot. And I was surprised. I always thought, Oh yeah, you go to China and there's like all these people on bicycles everywhere. And there's none from what I've seen. Like it's really fallen out of favor to ride bikes there or something. From mm -hmm. what I for you know, 
where I've been around Beijing on a couple of occasions and some other big cities and stuff, I was surprised to see there weren't many. What, what I did see that was super bizarre that I didn't anticipate was a totally different kind of e-bike. So imagine a Honda Spree scooter uh -huh. with no gas motor, just a lead acid car battery in it. <laughs> oh, really? Lead acid battery? Lead acid car battery. And those things are everywhere. And like giant, there are some that were branded giant for like the Chinese domestic market. Like ah. all sorts of major brands, uh, terrible build quality, but they're, they're just, they're for like around town stuff that people 10 years ago would have ridden a normal bike for, but that's like, you know, they're an upwardly mobile society and they're trying, they, they aspire to ride motorcycles and I think scooters with, with gas motors are, are limited in a lot of the cities there for pollution. Um, but they have this whole system of these terrible scooters and the convenience stores have a coin operated power cord at the front no. where, where you stick a quarter in or a, a coin in and you get 15 minutes of charge <laughs> and like they're everywhere. And, and it's just jumper cables given 12 volts <laughs> Straight up. lead acid battery piece of crap <laughs> scooter and they're everywhere. And there's, you know, three people on them sometimes and whatever. Normal. Yeah, or more. Maybe. But yeah, I was like, oh, so that's a thing that doesn't exist anywhere else that I've been, but might be super prevalent in India or some other, you know, <laughs> lower per capita income, higher population places, you know. <laughs> oh my god when i was in china in 2017 i noticed that there was those i noticed those i didn't know i didn't recognize that they had a lead acid car battery in them. oh yeah which is another that's another layer of hilarity. and it's a removable lead acid car battery <laughs> these people live in high-rises so they pull them out carry them to the elevator bring them into their apartments stick them on the carpet and plug them in i think oh my god because like they don't have most of them don't have garages they park on the street yeah so yeah super weird i mean it makes sense but it's yeah. i did i did notice that there wasn't a lot of bikes on the streets in shanghai that was where i kind of traveled in and out of mm -hmm. but there was all of those what do they call them like the freaking the ofo the like the the bike share like the bike oh, yeah, share yeah, thing yeah, totally where you like scan the code on it and it unlocks the bike lock and you just totally. ride away. Yeah. Well, my experience is really funny because obviously in China, the internet is so controlled. You can't have Facebook, you can't have Google. And so right. I had to, for my phone, I had to use a VPN and that masks my IP address. Like I'm in Shanghai or I'm like I'm in Singapore, but okay. then, when you download the app to try to become part of this bike share, it thinks you're in Singapore and Singapore doesn't have this damn bike share thing. Right. Yeah. So you can't do it. So then there's literally like, like there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these things. And like, depending on the time, like in front of big apartment buildings, like at eight o'clock at night when everyone is home from work, like there are thousands of these fucking bikes just uh -huh. in the, what is more or less a pile out front of this apartment building, right? Well, so I, I can't I can't just get one. 
So what I got to do, we would just walk around. We, we had, I was there for about almost a month and our last night in Shanghai, we did this big overnight acid trip and <laughs> it was just super surreal. I had just read Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I had like read a hundred pages of it that day. I was like, that's not a recommended like combination. But what we would do is we would basically walk around and we would jiggle the lock on each of these like a million bikes, right? right? And we found that about one in 100 would be partially locked that would be able to unlock. Or yeah. if the bike is damaged, they leave it unlocked. So we would find all these derelict, flat tired, bit cranks, missing pedal bikes. And this is how we got around on this overnight acid trip in Shanghai. <laughs> And it was just like, and there was like, you would go to the waterfront and you could just like, where the river is shallow, you can just see the colorful frames of these bikes where people have just like thrown them into the river. And, uh-huh. and yeah, I think I remember reading some kind of article about how the Chinese bike share thing boomed so big then eventually crashed. So that was my Chinese bike experience. And it was, yeah, it was something. Sounds fun. <laughs> It was something. But yeah, Carl, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your perspective. You have a very dry humor that I really appreciate. <laughs> well, I guess it's some humor anyway. <laughs> but yeah, uh, man. Yeah, it's always fun. Um, yeah. yeah, when this all blows over, we'll have to go for another bike ride. You know, e-bike me on the uh, unplugged bike. We didn't even talk about my racing against the e-bikes thing. That was one of the things that I figured we should loop back to let's loop back come on we still got time you know about that whole thing no so giant didn't giant made made e-bikes 12 years ago or more um they didn't take off in the u.s market then they pulled out from the u.s and then they were kind of slow to come back and then uh so they came out with e-bikes again this is maybe that same year i was in san francisco uh they had a new line of e-bikes and or actually, this is before the San Francisco thing. This would be the year prior. Sorry. Sea Otter Classic is like the big coming out party for for the for North America. It might be the biggest bike race in the world in terms of like viewership, like people on on foot looking at at uh, vendors and everybody shows off their new bike race or their new bikes for the year and their new technology and all this stuff. Um, so they had their first like this is a long-standing event it's been around for 25 30 years it's a it's a it's a huge part of the industry in north america and globally really um so they had their first ever e-bike race at this thing and this is like five years ago now probably and giant didn't make an e-bike and i was like hey i'm gonna go do the e-bike race on my normal bike and <laughs> and told my boss that and he's like okay whatever <laughs> knock yourself out so uh i took i i went to like a thrift store and i bought a salad shooter and i cut the cord off and i poked a hole in the cap on my i stuck this this cord out of my fork so it like looked kind of like you could plug it in or whatever it's kind of a joke what, but. what what is a salad shooter it's like a electric thing from the 80s or 90s where you like chop up vegetables because you were too lazy to use a knife okay um, so I. I take this, this, I went and I, I got, I'm in like the open class, which is like, 
anybody can enter it. So there's like everybody mm. from like just industry people that want to be in the fastest group to like Christoph Sauser, who is multiple time mountain bike racer, a little bit past his prime, but still a hitter. And he's on like the specialized, which was the best bike on the market at the time. Like he's this, you know, he's the best guy in the world for doing this. Uh, so I hide in the back so they don't see my bike and like I get up there and I start we, it was like an hour-long race on the sway which is this hill above the racetrack there in the infield and it was crazy man like uh, one of the most unique and interesting races I've ever done like uh, people were yelling at, calling me a cheater and stuff they're all like kind of la laughing about and shit but like people were super stoked because so many industry insiders didn't don't like e-bikes and they're like yeah fuck those e-bike guys like go beat them on a normal bike so i i went out there and i and there were 34 dudes that 34 finishers i ended up 30 or i ended up uh 16th i think 16th or 17th right up 50 percentile um which but the way that i did it was super like so the the different i was average right among this race um, so the difference between e-bikes and a normal bike are very little really in the grand scheme of things. Um, but the way that that race went down was just crazy. Like I'm, there were places where I was obviously faster than anybody else in the race. And then other places it was like, I was, you know, had, a, had lead shoes on. It was great. Like the difference in speed in some places was massive and others it was zero. And uh, I, I ended up being average, basically. Whoa. Um, and and was, what were those places that you had the advantage? And what were the, like, obviously, climbing up a steep hill seems like the e-bike will smoke you. But what are the places that... Uh, yeah. An e-bike, it cuts out at, at 18 miles an hour. That's kind of the, mm. the international standard for mountain bike e-bikes. So at 30K an hour, which is 18, they stop giving you power and then you just have a 50 pound mountain bike with no power so if you come off of a hill say and you're going 20 miles an hour like i'm going to keep pedaling until i'm going 25 or whatever these people on e-bikes like it's kind of this negative feedback loop where like when it's when it stops giving you power you stop giving it power because there's mm -hmm. diminishing returns there kind of mm -hmm. um so they I'd be going faster on all the flat stuff and all, on all the downhills than they would. And into like the bottom of a steep climb, I'd be going way faster than them because I need to hold momentum. They would just kind of soft pedal to the climb and then let the motor pull them up the hill. I would sprint into the climb so that I would keep the speed up and then slowly peter out towards the top. And at the top, I'd be totally gassed and like hyperventilating and like wheezing and breathe, you know, cry breathing, as they say, <laughs> like when you're at your absolute minimum, maximum. I was riding this race as hard as any race I raced all year that year. Like I was, <laughs> I was bent on like making a point and uh, I don't know really what the point was, <laughs> but <laughs> I was racing my guts out. I was trying really damn hard. And uh, there'd be dudes in like, you know, in cargo shorts blazing by me at triple my speed at the top of the climb. Um, so I got in these amazing back and forth battles with just these random dudes I didn't know on totally different bikes. And I love that shit, man. Like when you can have people doing 
going over all the same speed, but in a totally different way on different machines. It's, I, I find that to be super gratifying and just, uh, it's just interesting. You know, you learn so much about where your strength is and what their strength is. And I learned more about e-bikes doing that than I did by riding them later, I think. Whoa. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, it was, it was neat. It was fun. I'm so glad we looped back to that. Yeah, initially I was just going to do it because I thought they'd start on the racetrack, which was most of the, like, on the pavement. I'm like, oh, they're limited to 18 miles an hour. I'm just going to, like, hold shot this thing, sprint off the front, and be off the front of this e-bike race on a non-powered bike. <laughs> and it's going to be, I'll get the photo off and I'll quit. And then they changed the course and it was all up on this thing and it went straight into this dirt climb. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I guess I'll just do the whole thing. Disney. Oh man, good stuff, Carl. Yeah, that's hilarious, man. This has definitely been the funniest. <laughs> this has been the funniest podcast interview I've recorded in the last two weeks. I really appreciate that. Yeah, well, glad to uh, keep you entertained and keep myself busy for an hour or two. Yeah, good. Glad I could do it. Yeah. Well, uh, stay safe in there, man. You too. I'll let you know when the recording's out. Yeah, do that. All right, Carl. Thanks, man. We'll see you. Okay, you guys. I hope you had some good laughs during that. I definitely laughed my ass off as we were recording that. I hope... I hope that my own laughter didn't uh, didn't dilute the audio quality for you to understand what we're actually talking about. But um, I appreciate Carl for coming on the show. That was super fun. So if you like this podcast, share, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. And consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate your support and your encouragement. If you want to give me some encouragement, which is free to do, you can email me at airyintheair at gmail.com. Love you guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. We'll see you on the next episode. Good stuff coming up. Stay tuned.
Get together. It's gonna be like magic. magic. 